0: Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm going to pray for Kevin here as we get started. Father God, um, these are hard words. Uh, They sound confusing, they sound challenging. At the forefront, and I just ask that you would help us take a collective deep breath as we approach these verses and this passage, as we remember what we know about Jesus and what we know about you um, and your spirit, which is that you love us deeply. We are your beloved. Would you help us to sit in that as we approach things that may not make sense at first sight. So, challenge us where we need challenge, Lord. For those of us that need to be encouraged, encourage us, God. There's very real loss in the room when it comes to your gospel and our blood families. And so, would you provide healing and encouragement where it's needed and challenge where it's needed? All these things we ask in your name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Seth. Um, Bobby Skimbury, who's our deacon of worship, is doing the cooking for the men's camp out, and he's informed me that you can't be waiting. Yeah, he's a great chef, but you can't be waiting until the last minute. They're trying to plan for food. So guys, get online and sign up now, please. Maybe wait till the end of the sermon. Um, I bet your grandma blocked you on Facebook at some point over the past few years, or, or maybe you had to block her. It wouldn't surprise me right? Our world today has gotten that crazy and divided, especially online. You know, we see all these people fighting, fighting over things like foreign policy, killing over, killing one another over things like candy corn, right? Do we eat it or not? Do I look like the type of person who likes candy corn? Of course, yeah. But it just gets too far, right? It gets taken too far. Everybody running into their corners or their ghettos, hurling grenades, most of them verbal and electronic, thankfully, but that's not even always the case. Uh, Holiday dinners, um, we'll get to those soon, are, are more difficult than ever. You have to keep your guard up, it seems, and avoid every landmine. Or people end up fleeing the dining room and just deciding to watch football, or they storm back out the door and head back out on the highway. These are really divided days, and that division hits our families, right, maybe most of all. Russell Moore, in his new book, tells the story of this mother walking up to him, asking for prayer... And she's really, really concerned about her girl. Now, Russ is expecting her to share something like that she's abandoned the faith or she's living this this double life. You know, Saturday night at the club, Sunday morning in the pew is what Russ says. But he writes this that I thought, this was a true LOL moment for me. Um, But no, writes more, The presenting issue wasn't any of those things, the mother said. It was a bumper sticker on the daughter's car when she pulled into the driveway for the family's Thanksgiving gathering. No one said anything about it, the mother said. She didn't even mention it, but we all felt the tension. Once again, my mind was racing ahead of the storyline, expecting to hear that the bumper sticker read, my other car is a broom, celebrate Wicca, or pass the joints, not judgment, legalize marijuana, or maybe even one of the coexist stickers with all the symbols of each world religion bunched together in the word. None of that was the case either. The bumper sticker read, Any Sane Functioning Adult for President 2020. Now, the point really isn't what you think of President 45, okay? The sticker could have read, Make America Great Again. It could have, you know? I'm not saying none of those things matter, but that's not really the point. We experience so much division today... And that division so often hits us close to home, right? And here's what I want us to ask as we walk through this passage this morning. Are we dividing, are we separating about the right things? So we've been walking through Matthew. We've been in a section here, extended sermon, where Jesus is teaching his disciples and the Lord is sending them out and he's warning them about the dangers that are ahead. And so this particular block of teaching, D.A. Carson summarizes as mission and martyrdom. Jesus warns about the persecution that's coming. He had to suffer through it. We will too. He encourages not to fear but to trust, knowing that he's in control, as well as our need to endure. And then we get to the shocking statement here in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, as Aaron Ferguson, one of our pastors, said this week, this paragraph, he said, is, quote, especially spicy. But isn't that what we've already seen from Jesus and Matthew, and isn't it what we should normally expect from him? If he's the God he says he is, um, if he's our God, if, if the Bible is his revelation to us, wouldn't we expect it to shake us up? Wouldn't we expect us to shock us at times? Tim Keller once put it this way, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes if there's a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. And he wrote elsewhere, if Christianity is really true, it will be offending and correcting you somewhere. Is that the way that you approach the Bible? If it is, you expect sayings that are spicy, right? Eight or higher on the Thai restaurant scale. This ain't no Hallmark movie. This is more like a Cormac McCarthy novel. We have to set our expectations right. And it's definitely going to be spicy at times, but also never simple. And what I mean by that is you may initially hear these words of Jesus, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and you might take that as some reason not to trust the Bible. I thought he was the the prince of peace, right? What a contradiction, what a crock, right? But again, if God is who he says he is, he can't be backed into some corner, he can't be wedged into some box because maybe he's a God of love and of judgment. Maybe he brings peace and division in some way at the same time. I want you to notice four things in our time in this passage today that I'm gonna walk through. Um, They're these. First, what we should expect. Second, why we should expect it. Third, what the Lord requires. And fourth, what our Lord offers. First, what we should expect. So it's easy for us to think, right, that when, when we come to follow Jesus that things will just get easier. The logic isn't that difficult. It, it makes sense. You know, we come to the Prince of Peace. We're going to be in the presence of peace, Right? But again, it's not that simple because actually becoming a Christian will result in conflict. That's what Jesus says. First, what we should expect, resistance. The Lord says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. So that's jarring, right? Strong words, and we'll get to what those mean, but just first, the the tone, the way it, it kicks off. Who talks like this? I have come, that language. Not many, I mean, we've been around people who think they're, they're really important and they want you to know, but this is next level. Who says this, who talks like this? Someone who knows he's the Messiah, someone who's God in the flesh, who has this sense of divine purpose, that's who, and he wants us to listen to him. But what is all this talk about the sword? It's certainly not talking about him bringing a war, Now we've seen Jesus and Matthew taking out demons left and right. We we know his enemies will be defeated one day. Yeah, that's coming. But here Jesus seems clearly to be talking about the separation, the division that will take place around his identity and ministry. Some will reject him, others will embrace him. And those of us who do cling to him, will face resistance from those who don't. Things are not often going to feel very peaceful at all. A hurricane of hate will often hit us, the, the people of God. But we have this confidence in the eye of the storm, in the presence of Jesus, there will be a kind of tranquility if we lean into him, if we're near to Jesus, It's our nearness to him that'll bring us peace, but it's also what will cause the resistance. As people have lashed out at him, they'll also lash out at us. That's his guarantee. But we just have to make sure it's for the right reasons. We can use words of Jesus like these to try to justify a sinful, divisive spirit, a license to be trolls, turds online or to be the crazy screamer at the school board meeting that you've seen on YouTube. You know, Jesus flipped over the the tables in the temple, I'm just gonna act like him. We try to use it to justify things like that. But this is not an excuse to turn our tongues into blades. Those who don't believe shouldn't stumble, they shouldn't struggle over our words that are wicked. But only over the cross, that's an offense enough. He's saying here that even as we try to walk like him and try to walk gentle and lowly as he did, people will be threatened by that. And his truth will cut like a sword right through the crowd and some will walk with him and others won't. And those who don't will pick up the sword and they'll come after us. But here's the thing that's most shocking, right? And if we think it's mind-blowing now, it especially was then The Lord says this resistance will even come from within our own family. Here, verses 35 and 36 again. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So even the closest, most intimate relationships, they would be torn apart by how people respond to Jesus the King. David Platt talks about this mission trip his church took to North Africa where this woman was brought, she was wheeled up in a wheelbarrow, severely ill, she was about to die and those believers, those, those uh, medical professionals on this trip, they, they give her care, she gets better and they share the gospel with her and she becomes a Christian as well and then she goes home and she shares the news with her father who then beats her. This is what we should expect, Jesus says, as we follow him down his road. Now, that may seem miles away from what you've experienced or what you could ever imagine taking place in your home. Maybe there's mocking, right? You come home excited, talking about Jesus, and you hear, settle down, child, we don't need to get so religious here, and and please, you know, give, give us a break here. That's, that's the reaction I got when I first became a disciple, and it really intensified when I started talking about ministry because I was supposed to be the really successful child you know, that, that validated my mom's parenthood. I've heard of countless stories of students going home to mom and dad, being all excited about going on this trip to Mexico or Brazil, something exciting, and getting tons and tons of resistance from mom and dad. The Lord warns us. We shouldn't be surprised. This is what we can expect, resistance, and even at home. Now as Jesus said back in verses 32 and 33 before though, we have to acknowledge him before others. We we can't deny him or his father will deny us. If we find there's no resistance, it could mean we're on the wrong road. But what is the right road? Well, the one that sees him is everything. And that moves toward my second point. Why we should expect it, allegiance. Allegiance. One reason we can get so much resistance today is that we're showing our allegiance to a whole host of other lesser things. That political party, that cause, following other kings, trying to build other kingdoms. That's what the world sees, and they lash out. They're not seeing Jesus, and it's obscuring the glory of the cross. But here, again, it's talking about something very specific, right? Something that's so easily shoved into the center that ends up pushing out the Son. Verse 37 again. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Hear me, it's not like Jesus is just trying to tell us to scrap the fifth commandment, to honor our moms and dads. What he's talking about here is what's first in our hearts. What's our primary allegiance? Is it to him or to them? That's what he's getting at. Think again, who talks like this? The rabbis back in that day, they didn't go this far to say, to demand loyalty even higher than parents, only the Messiah, only God, that's who would do this. Now, praise God, some of us have moms and dads that believe, maybe brothers and sisters, other loved ones as well, but even then, the word allegiance starts with those three letters all, A-L-L. You know, as Aaron said this week, you can't spell allegiance without all in, if you didn't know that Aaron likes to bring the cheese to the staff meetings, you know, the the dad jokes, long before he was a dad. But all, Jesus is meant to be everything. He's first, not second, certainly not last. If those we love tell us to do something that contradicts what Christ wants us to do, we pick Jesus, plain and simple. We honor our Father in heaven first and foremost. If what they want and what he wants they happen to converge, then great. But there's no such thing as allegiance that's split. Right? Maybe you've seen the, the moms that go to football games and you know one other kid plays for Mizzou and one plays for K-State. Maybe that'll happen next week. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't have Jesus on the front and something else on the back, right? When our family and our father, their wills, they diverge, we go with our primary allegiance to Jesus, our first love. It's that simple, but it's also so very hard, right? And it's why this kind of resistance should be expected because none of us likes to come in second place, right? And we want to push back against that with everything we can, everything we got. And we're also so prone to put other things first, other than God. Maybe our work, maybe money, maybe the pursuit of power or sex. Maybe it is our favorite team, but especially our parents and certainly our kids. Family is a gift, right, if done well. But it's something that's so easy to turn into a God into an idol where we rest all of our hopes, where if those relationships are good, it it's feels like we're in heaven, but if things go south, it feels like hell. But this earthly family is temporary, right? Our spiritual family is supreme, and our ultimate and only allegiance is to him. And here's the tragic irony. When we try to turn a good thing into a God thing, we end up destroying that thing and making it or them along with us completely miserable. And that's what I feel like my mom did to me. She loved me so deeply that I became an idol in her eyes and no one can bear that weight. Push me away. Parents. We have so many young parents here. We have to give our children to him. Yes, love them fiercely for sure, but trust God to guide them well. He is our God, not them, and we don't want to try to act like a God before them. Let your children follow him. You'll gain a brother and sister. You'll, un- it's, you'll be unlikely to lose them, as so many do. Children, seek to honor your folks. Try to love them the best you can, but never submit to sin. Don't worship them for sure. Don't bow before them as your God. You'll never, ever be able to fill up that hole in their hearts, but you can point them to the one who can, who can make them whole, but they'll never see it, though, if you don't stay true to your king. They need to see that, too. So think about this. In our culture, it's no big deal, you know, if, if kids move across the, the country, they're far from mom and dad. It's kind of expected, it's, it's in, our, in our culture, but in that day, it was completely different, right? Families lived and worked together. I mean, so much of the rest of the world is still like this today. But parents depended on their children. It was a culture that was built on community. Ours, of course, is more individualistic. But Jesus says even then I come first, right? Drop your nets, come fish with me, guys. He said stuff like that. He says, my kingdom trumps your family. And he means this so much that somewhere else in the Bible, he even words it more strongly. You've probably heard this before. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, (laughs) so that that ratchets it up another notch, right? Now, I do think that that what Matthew gets at is really Jesus' message, right? Are we talking that we should truly hate? I don't think so, but love Jesus more Far more, that's the point. In a way that just seems like hate almost in comparison. The question is, to whom do we give our hearts most of all? And again, it's why we end up getting the hate ourselves. Pastor Stephen Um put it this way. He writes, what Jesus is calling us to is ultimate allegiance. He is essentially saying, to be my disciple you must give me preeminence over and sometimes against all other relationships. In other words, our lives should be so submitted to Christ that when we put our allegiance to him side by side with other allegiances, the difference is so great that it could be described in the black and white terminology of love and hate. Wow. Have you heard the story of Abraham and his son? in the Old Testament in Genesis 22. Maybe it's been a while, but the Lord gives Abraham this promise of great offspring and great land. But he and his wife Sarah, they, they can't have kids, right? So they, they see no way that this promise is gonna work out. They even laugh at it, right? Come on, Lord, how's this gonna happen? But God miraculously opens the womb and they get this gift, this boy Isaac, And what does God do? He immediately asks Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to him. So Abraham, his servant, does what God says. He lays him out there. He picks up his knife. And the Lord sees so clearly, right, who Abraham loves most. Now, of course, it's doubtful that that's anything that will ever be asked of us. But the question is, where is our allegiance? Only Jesus and him alone gets the first place in our hearts, and that will cause friction in families. That's why we should expect resistance, because of our allegiance to him. Well, I want to move to the third point for this morning. For the last two, I'll spend a little less time. What the Lord requires, crucifixion. So when Abraham is there on that mountain, he's offering up Isaac on that altar to God. Here's what's happening, right? He's putting his desires, his will to death, right? All of his dreams, he's giving them to God, he's putting them to death, and he's trusting them in the hands of the Lord. And this is what the Lord is asking of us. Look at verse 38 again. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, we in the original hearers of this, we, of course, know where, where Jesus was gonna go. So the original readers, I should say, the original hearers, the disciples gathered around, they're, they're struggling, of course, to grasp what's going on. But they could see the crosses there along the, along the road in the Roman Empire. They could see the men carrying them to their death. And they knew that Jesus was calling them to come and die, maybe give up their lives, but definitely lay down their desires. And this is, this is rough, right? Maybe you lay down the career of your dreams. Maybe you won't get all A's because you want to be with your church family. Perhaps you won't get the recognition in your program you want because you identify with Christ. Maybe you won't get the house or the trips or the lifestyle that you would like. Of course, here though, again, the emphasis is on family. Maybe your your parents or siblings won't accept your new faith or there'll be awkwardness between you and friends that you've had for years. Maybe your desire for marriage seems miles away because you won't compromise your standards and get pulled away from your first love. Jesus says, take up your cross, die to your desires, the desires of always being applauded, of always living an easy-peasy life. Soon we're going to call the Reese family up here and send them off in prayer. Um, it's the second time that we're sending them off, so, you know, it's going to be hard. But, but Dave, Dave is working on a PhD. His wife is a capable nurse, and they have everything in place to live a, a pretty comfy life. And there wouldn't be anything, let me be clear, there wouldn't be anything wrong with serving God in those ways, we could celebrate that just as much, but they sense God sending them to Uganda, and they're going to go there and take on some hard stuff trying to help guide young kids, um, students, orphans, into adulthood, and most of which have come out of some pretty traumatic, war-torn homes, I think largely in Sudan, They'd probably like to stay in this town that they love and a church that they call home. But they've chosen to die to those dreams and, and live for him. And I can't lie, I'd kind of like them to stay around here, right? They have some, some pretty great leadership potential. They're great folks. If you, if you know them, you'd agree. But I, we have to die to our desires as well to let those things go because Jesus calls us to crucifixion. Now, when we talk about self-denial, and we'll get to this more in in Matthew, that's why I'm not going to go into it too much today, Jesus isn't asking us to be something other than ourselves. He made us uniquely, after all, but he wants us to be the the best version of ourselves that we can be, and that's only going to come as we lean into him and as we die to our self-will and we follow after his, and that's not easy, right? Right? to state the obvious, to let go of our wants, to believe that he offers the best. Paul Miller explains it this way, the struggle. He says, the great struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It is trying to discern and then disown my own. The great struggle in my life is not trying to discern God's will. We put so much focus on that. That often is easier than we think. It's trying to discern and then disown my own, right? And then follow after his. This is what the Lord requires, crucifixion. But the journey's worth it. Fourth, what he offers, resurrection. Resurrection. So what happened with Abraham as he raises the knife? God calls out. Abraham, Abraham, and he he tells him to stop. Abraham looks up, he sees that ram caught in the thicket, and Abraham offers up that instead, and there's all sorts of things we could talk about there, about the symbolism with Christ. But here, how this is explained over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham, he could die to his deepest desires because he trusted God with them. He trusted God to bring them to life. Listen to Jesus again in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we cling to those desires, we'll end up losing them all. Our career, our status, our family, friends, whatever it is we're clinging for, it'll it'll evaporate in our hands. But if we offer them up to to him, we'll, in the end, receive from him. It may not be exactly what we think we want, you know, because we don't know what's best. But true and lasting joy, a new heavens, a new earth, that's our promise. Crucifixion, but also resurrection. Back in my 20s, um, I heard, I remember taking a walk with my golden retriever puppy, listening to John Piper's probably best known sermon. Uh, maybe you've heard it. It's the one about the, the seashells. If not, maybe look it up. But he tells a story of two women that he knew in their late 70s or 80s who resolve in their twilight years to do medical missions in Cameroon. And these two old ladies, they get over there. Um, they're, they're driving out to do, do the work. The, the brakes go out on their car, and they plunge over a cliff to their death. And Piper shouts out in front of all these people, thousands of people, is this a tragedy? And then he says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And then he tells a story that um, he had just read in a magazine about a couple who had decided to retire and spend the rest of their lives on the beach finding seashells. And he pleads at this this passion conference, which was filled with thousands of students. He pleads with them, don't waste your life. He says, that's the tragedy. It's been called the sermon that's that it's been called a sermon that changed a generation, and it definitely impacted me deeply. Let me, let me be clear here. I enjoy time on the beach. We had some a couple of months ago. God's creation should be enjoyed. Rest is a gift. It's a good thing. Not everybody's called to go to Africa, no. So he's gotten, I think, some just criticism for just going too far. But We want to hear his point. The point is, will we dig into our desires and cling to a life of ease, or will we follow him and die and find true life in him? That's what Jesus offers, resurrection. If we want to talk about making disciples together as a church, that will not happen on the path of least resistance. And that path of least resistance, it merges with the road leading to death. But Carlos, we were made for something better. We were made for something more, weren't we? Herschel York put it this way. Salvation is completely free. Jesus paid it all. Discipleship will cost you everything. Jesus is worth it all. Do you believe this? Are you living like this? Are we together? Let's help each other. It's tough, yeah, but it's worth it. We're so prone, again, to pledge our allegiance to our family, to our country, but he is our father. These are our brothers and sisters. He is our king. His is the kingdom that we're about, and that'll bring us hate, but we'll gain our first love. I want to briefly go back to something I started with. Doesn't the Bible actually say that Jesus comes to bring peace? Yeah, right? It's literally what the angels sing to those just the shepherds, right, on the night of Christ's birth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Doesn't the Bible call Jesus the prince of peace? yes. Isaiah 9, another Christmas passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he would be called Prince of Peace. Yeah, Jesus came to bring peace. Perfect shalom. The, The reverse of the curse. Everything in harmony again. Peace between us and God. Peace between us and each other. Peace between us and even his creation. Bodies that are restored his creation made new. Our kingdom will bring his king our king will bring his kingdom and it'll be peace. Yeah. But we often settle for something that pales in comparison to that. Shallow comfort, cheap peace. As CS Lewis once described it, we are content making mud pies in the slum instead of spending a holiday at the sea. We choose a drama free life and we miss out on his grand story. And Jesus offers us something greater, something deeper, but it will not be easy. R.T. France writes As long as some men refuse the lordship of God, to follow the Prince of Peace will always be a way of conflict. There's great peace down the road, even if things are tough here and now. But we even have more comfort that Jesus gives us because Jesus knows and understands. Not just suffering in general, but even suffering at the hands of those we love. Matthew 13.57 says that Jesus' family was offended by him. Mark 3.21 says they thought he was nuts and they wanted to grab him and drag him all the way home. In John 7, his brothers seem to mock him and John says that they don't believe anything he says. Maybe they would have blocked Jesus on Facebook, his brothers. Jesus not only offers us this peace, he understands the conflict just as much and that should even give us more peace. Next week we'll, we'll finish up Christ's last few words here, and we'll look at the rewards that are also found in the struggles. So if we deny ourselves, we find life in him, but even beyond that, there are rewards for those who live on mission for Jesus. But as we live in today's world, we shouldn't be surprised by resistance as we demonstrate our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. And I'm not talking about getting backlash for being butts or boneheads on Facebook, not for some allegiance to other kingdoms or causes, but resistance that comes from our allegiance to Jesus and to him alone. We'll get blocked, we'll get mocked, we'll get maligned, we'll get hurt. But if we do, we're in good company. Back in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. He says, we'll receive the kingdom of heaven. We're blessed when we suffer with him. And if it's grandma who bludgeons us, either on Facebook or around the Thanksgiving table, we can trust, Jesus understands, and it'll be worth it. He gives us these words of encouragement at the end of chapter 19. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That woman I mentioned earlier, who was beaten by her father, later down the road, her father gave, him, gave his life to Christ. That could happen. Maybe it won't. But either way, laying down our lives leads to life in him, to be a part of the family of God. And we have to trust that. We're in good company we're in good hands, we have to stand for Jesus and we have to suffer with him. I've been reading uh, Courtney Ellis' book called Present. Um, Our own Eric Danielson wrote the foreword for the book, which was cool. Um, She compares two different ways we can go about building our church in, in a world that's hostile and hard. We can dig holes for fence posts, and then try to keep everyone in with the fence. We can live in fear. We can try to keep each other safe. We can preemptively, you know, bring about a separation ourselves, right? That kind of thing. Or we can go about it in another way. We can take all that energy and instead turn it toward digging something deeper, something better, wells, right? Wells that are full of living waters, that offer us joy we all so desperately want. Water that's worth dying for, water that gives life that we all desire, and then call people to that. Let's dig these wells together, Karis. Some will still lash out at us. We'll know that for sure. Even people who might sleep in the bedroom down the hallway from us. But they'll ultimately be raging against him and not us, And some, we'll be sure, will snap out of their their rage and drink of those living waters right alongside us. We should expect resistance even from those we love because of our allegiance to Jesus the King, the one we love most, knowing that crucifixion is the path to resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, Thank you for offering us living water. Forgive us, Father, for turning and drinking of things that don't satisfy, that end up harming us. Bring us to your well. Satisfy us with you, we pray. And thank you for giving us this calling, Lord. Help us to trust you and and follow you where you would call. And just to know that you're with us and it's worth it, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.